welcome after a long hiatus to the Greenville Smart Podcast. I'm your host, Elaine McNamara, the Director of Operations for the Smart Center in Greenville and the Executive Director of the Greenville Chamber of Commerce. With me today, I'm so glad to have you back, Deloitte, our producer, Deloitte Cole. Uh, we've done a lot of the, our podcast via Zoom, and uh, I would send them into Deloitte. And so I'm so glad to have an in-person podcast in our new podcast studio in the Smart Center in Greenville. The Greenville Smart Podcast is brought to you by Greenville University and the Greenville Chamber of Commerce. And I'm also very excited to have our guest today. We attempted to do a podcast via Zoom and technology was just not on our side that day. So with me today is Dr. Brian Hartley. Brian is the Dean of Faculty and the Chief Academic Officer for Greenville University. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Elaine. Good to be with you. Yes, yeah, so glad to have you. You are our, our, well, our first guest with our new equipment in the uh, the podcast studio, so we're very excited. I hope you're as excited as we very are. Very excited. The sun is shining today, and uh, as I just told Deloitte, I had a good run, so I'm ready to go this morning. Well, awesome. That's great. You got the blood pumping, and you're ready for ready for our hard-hitting questions here at the Greenville Smart Podcast. Now, for those of you who might not know, um, uh, Brian Hartley has a long history with Greenville College slash Greenville University. Tell us where it all began. Well, I grew up in a pastor's home in the Free Methodist Church. And so because Greenville was one of our half dozen or so colleges, uh, that's really where I got to know the name. But when I arrived here as a student in August of 1975, I arrived sight unseen. Oh, wow. And that is uh, simply because I had never been here. The only way I knew of it, obviously, was through contacts, personal contacts. My father had traveled through Greenville in 1964 and had snapped a photograph in what we then called a slide. <laughs> and so I had seen my first pictures of Greenville and Hogue Hall, which was the old historic building that marked Greenville, um, was through that slide that he happened to display for us. But it was really through personal contacts here. And it's, it's a long story, but to make it short, um, three houses down from us lived the mother of Dr. David Dickerson, and, okay. and David taught at that time in the English faculty here at Greenville. And for one year, he was named the interim director of admissions. And so that was in 1974. And so he came calling at my home in Oklahoma City, and we had quite a conversation. And that really initiated my decision uh, to come to Greenville. It was because of David, David reaching out. It's fate, it really. Is. It's it's the Lord stepping in. Um, so tell us, you arrive here. Was it what you expected? Well, the the interesting thing for me was I came from Oklahoma City, which was about five hundred and fifty miles away, mm -hmm. where we were used to heat, mm -hmm. but I was certainly not used to Greenville's humidity. Yeah. And in those days, as Deloitte will affirm for me, living in Joy Hall, where there was no <laughs> air conditioning. Right, uh, we we took I took lots of showers uh, and could never quite get comfortable, at least for those first few weeks here. So that was a challenge. Uh, I really knew no one outside of Doctor Doctor Dickerson. I had three great aunts in town, mm -hmm. 
Um, and so they were sort of my lifeline. But in terms of students, I really didn't know any of the students who were there. And being a socially awkward kid, that was a that was a real challenge for me. But things pretty much changed. You didn't. You weren't always the socially awkward student because uh, you've got a little bit of a reputation of being kind of a prankster. And there's something. You were a musician. Is that correct? Yeah, I was uh, a long-haired drummer who had usually had two pairs of drumsticks in my back pocket. So the old timers here, folks like uh, Bill Ahern will tell you that was his first impression when I arrived on campus. But that awkwardness really was a challenge for me. Um, in those days, many of us who'd grown up in the Free Methodist Church, we did not we we were not familiar with the culture that much. So for instance, when I arrived here, I'd never been inside of a cinema. Uh, oh, I'd wow. never gone to see a film before. That was something that was sort of banned in our household. And so that social awkwardness was a combination, I think, of my introversion, not really having been immersed in the larger popular culture. And then, of course, my part-time job, which was at Deaconess Hospital, where I worked with the dead and dying. Wow. You know, I assisted in autopsies. I was uh, in charge of a crash cart whenever a patient would code. And so that was an unusual combination. Was when, when I came here, most of my peers, obviously, were much more immersed in the popular culture. They'd not had the kinds of experiences I had. And so because I was somewhat introverted and being an 18-year-old, hormonally driven male, <laughs> trying to figure out how to direct uh, that energy was a challenge. And so I found myself pretty quickly in the dean of students' office on a couple, <laughs> couple of occasions. Uh, can you can you tell us about any of those? Or <laughs> well, I'm I'm not sure it would uh, it would be appropriate <laughs> probably in this podcast. I mm. I will simply say that uh, they they were considered inappropriate activities uh, at that time, and so I'm very grateful not only to Dean Catherine but but to those who were here on the staff and faculty because for whatever reason they saw potential. Right. In this young guy. And so one of the things they did is they tapped on the shoulder several upperclassmen, not only my resident assistant, Jim Johnson, for to whom I always give a shout out. Jim's been battling MS now for oh. over 10 years. And you may know him from some of the pictures you've seen drawn recently in the Greenville University calendar. Jim, Jim oh. is the artist behind that. He's still able to use a computer mouse. And so I'm very grateful to Jim, who was my first RA, and to people like Steve Pay, um, who took me under their wing and said, hey, we're going to find a place for you writing on the, on the papyrus or participating in student government. Those kinds of things really gave me an entree and then enabled me to take that energy that had been <laughs> placed in other areas uh, with not so good uh, deleterious outcomes and allowed me then to use them in much more positive ways. And they really turned your life around then. It, they really did. They really did. And and uh, that really became a, became a trajectory for me of finding ways to connect at Greenville. The faculty uh, really became the ones um, who were my best friends. I would say, unlike some students who've come, and then they have this long list of other peers that they point to, they've been lifelong friends, I... I haven't maintained that. We just had our, our 40th reunion last fall, and I was glad to welcome in my friends, and they love listening to my stories. But I would say m most of my deep relationships 
outside of my wife, whom I met here, were with faculty and with staff. And those really continued. In those days, even after I left and went off to Princeton and London and other places, they continued to correspond with me. So uh, I have many of those letters from Dr. McAllister and Dr. Stevens and Professor Frank Thompson. They were people who not only invested in me here, but even after I left campus. That's a true um, concern and a true relationship. Then when you know it's not just about being here, it's about your entire life. Now, is, do you think that those relationships are what brought you back here in the capacity that, that they did, that you did come back? Well, there's no question. I think uh, for Darlene, my wife and I, our strong commitment to the institution, to the mission of the institution. I will say for alums who come back, I think it's good to literally leave for some time. So we had 14 years away. I had a career away from here and was able to establish myself. And and so coming back, I really believe I was able to bring those 14 years of experience into the classroom. But had it not been for Ish Smith, Rich Stevens, Frank Thompson, Harriet Whiteman, I probably would not have returned. They were the ones who sort of wooed me back. There, that's wonderful, and that's something that I think that they still do. Um, I I know that I talk with Ish and Rich uh, often, and it's just a genuine concern for not just the university as an institution, but for the people that come here, and uh, you know that 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 leave here as well. So that's fantastic. Um, now, you know, this year has been a little bit different. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yes, and the next one promises to be even more so. Right, but you know, the thing is, we've talked about this before. Greenville is is hanging in there and they're tough because they've been through some things like like I, I know that's hard to imagine. People say we've never been through anything like this before, but Greenville's been through some tough times and you were kind of filling me in a little bit on that um where they had to step up. Yes, you can read about these in Mary Alice Tenney's book, Still Abides the Memory. But I would say there are sort of three periods I have looked to for guidance during this time. One, obviously, was the 1918 episode when the Spanish influenza came through Greenville and really had a much stronger impact, hopefully, than what what we're going to face. I mean, a student died, over 15 students were infected, a faculty, beloved faculty member's spouse wound up dying. Mm -hmm. And so the the impact of the Spanish influenza in 1918, you can go out to Montrose Cemetery, in fact, and see some of that impact. The the second period that I think has really been inspirational is what happened during the Depression. And I think all of us know that during the 1930s, you had to find ways of being innovative and nimble to continue to survive. People literally were starving during that period of time. So thanks to the leadership of first President Marston and then uh, President Long, um, things like tower products were developed. Students actually sold uh, consumer products door to door. And there were a host of initiatives that were undertaken so that students could continue to come to Greenville and to thrive. And then the third time, about which I've not been able to find as much information, but but I think it's a crucial time, was 1942. And that was the period of time when under Dr. Uh, H.J. Long's leadership, of course, in the wake of the bombing at Pearl Harbor, young men began to enlist and be drafted into the military. And so as a result of that, there were very, very few males 
who were going off to college for several years there. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine when we talk about <clears throat> student numbers, I'm sure that period from 1942 to 1945 was a challenge, but they survived during that period and back came the GIs and flooded into <laughs> Greenville. And so Greenville then had to once again adjust to right. married students. A lot of married students were, were coming back. So they had to build these Quonset huts so, so they could house married students up where the tennis courts are now. Wow. I, something that I, I myself did not know about. That's amazing. So they, that's, it's, it's innovation and it's a, a strength that's here and that continues to uh, to keep everything going, and now um, how have you con have you talked with other CEOs from other institutions about what they're doing, and how do we kind of fit in with that? Or Greenville Greenville's a member of several different uh, organizations. Certainly, the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities, a group of about 150 170 institutions, we meet regularly. There's a smaller group, the CCC, which was. Uh, uh, one of the original groups that was put together, there are 13 institutions there, typically uh, smaller Christian colleges like ourselves. I was just on a call actually with chief academic officers with, with all of them about 10 days ago. So we are in regular conversations with one another. What I will tell you is the kinds of things that Greenville is facing is being faced right across right. the country. This is not unique to Greenville. What I will say is while we all face the same kinds of challenges, we all have a different set of resources that we can bring, right? True. Different settings. Some are rural, some are suburban, some are urban. Uh, size certainly plays into that. But we all have a similar kind of mission and are struggling through most of these institutions outside of one or two have very, very small endowments for for instance. And so that means you're heavily reliant on, on the tuition and the room and board that students bring. And given all the uncertainties we're facing, you can imagine the number of scenarios we're all trying to walk through because our bottom line commitment is to continue to provide a quality education for Greenville right. students. Yeah. So everyone's going through that. And I know that, that you've all been working very hard to make sure that uh, not only do we have our plan A, but we have a plan B and possibly a C and a D. C, D, E, and F, probably. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, is there something that you see for the future for a Greenville University? And, um, you know, maybe something that came out of this, um, but ways in, uh, you know, wait, maybe that Greenville Smart can be involved. Absolutely. So <clears throat> one of the things I've had to do as an academic is learn to speak business language. Every group has its own its own language. And, and one of the terms that I've uh, done a little research on is a term called value proposition. So you oftentimes may hear this term thrown out. The way I define a value proposition is it's essentially why you exist. What is it that you have to offer? And so as I began to do a little academic research, I came across an article that was written by two scholars, one at the University of Massachusetts, the other at the University of Montana. And they say that when you're trying to define your value proposition, there are really three key elements that you want to look at. What's important? What is worthy? Mm -hmm. And um, what kind of value do you have to offer in, into that uh, into that particular situation. So I always talk about this. I think that we have several things to offer that are somewhat unique. So for instance, 
uh, we are leaning in on our mission. I think that's a worthy venture. And so character and service. And I always tell people that character is something that's formed over time. It's not something that sort of drops out of the sky. Um, some people have suggested it takes some 10,000 hours to really become good at something. So if, we, if we're really concerned about developing uh, students of character, that means we have to teach it. We teach it not only on the athletic fields, we teach it in the music halls, we teach it in the classrooms, we teach it in the residence halls. Right, your RA, for instance. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And that's something that's worthy. Um, we have sort of a unique pedagogy we use. That's a fancy way for talking about teaching. What is it that we do? And so we really want to focus in on what we've done well over 127 years. And one of those things is experiential learning. So my colleague, Kathy Taylor, is coming along to uh, assist me in this and really leaning in with our faculty in making sure that those experiences are there that can really help our students grow. And so if you look at experiential education, there are two key components to it. The first is to have some kind of an immersive experience. Mm -hmm. So for me, that occurred under Dr. Jim Reinhardt when we took a trip to Chicago. I'd never been to Chicago as a freshman. I got dropped off. I was one of two students that was dropped off at Operation Push, which was being run at that time by the Reverend Jesse Jackson. Oh, wow. At that point, this young Southern boy was one of only, I think, the two of us were white and everybody else who was there was African-American. That threw me into an experience I'd really not had before, except maybe at an athletic event. And so that immersive relationship is important. What takes place so when Jesse walks out in his three-inch heels and raised his fist into the air <laughs> and said, repeat after me, I am black, I turned to my student colleague who immediately sprinted for the door, and I figured <laughs> he asked us to say it, I am black. And that's what I said. So for that couple of hours, I really was immersed in an experience that was highly unusual. You were never going to get that I never. any other time. Then I climbed back on the van, and uh, Dr. Reinhardt began this conversation with all of us. Tell us about what you experienced. And so the second part of experiential learning is not just the immersive experience. It's the reflection on that immersive sure. experience. And I have to tell you, I've spent much of my life in education. I have 16 years of graduate school beside, <laughs> beside everything else. And one of the things I really loved about much of my education was it, it was experientially based. I worked in a hospital in northern New Jersey when I was at Princeton that was largely Jewish, uh, working with patients again who, who were dying. And I had to come back and reflect with our group and clinical pastoral education on that. Many, many experiences of that sort, I believe, is what shapes us to become the individuals we are. So Greenville University is not afraid to lean into experiential education. Right. Now, I will say, given what we're facing this fall, I'm sure there are things we're going to have to do that we've never done before. And so that will be a challenge for us. And that might be a bonus for us in some ways. It could very well be. It, it could, could very well be. Because stepping out of the comfort zone, I think, is uh, what uh, Greenville University does well. I, I think so. It is. It is. And I would say the, the third piece I come back to on this value proposition that I think sets Greenville apart is going to be very important this fall. I think we're headed into a very 
heated rhetorical political season. We all know that there's a, there's a major election that will occur in November of this year, and anybody who's paying attention to the media recognizes the extreme divisiveness that's going on in our country and in the culture right now. One of the things that Greenville University has always taught me and that we try to really drill in with our students is we are not an either-or institution. Right. We are a both-and institution. That means we start by listening. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to talk than to listen. So in order to be a both-and institution, we have to do, the analogy I use is ride the barbed wire fence. So this came out of my childhood when I watched my father and my grandfather go over a barbed wire fence, and I wanted to follow as a six, seven-year-old. And I tried to go over that fence, and I wound up getting stuck on top of the fence. I had one leg in one county and one leg in the other <laughs> county, and I found myself in a very uncomfortable position. Sure. But I will say I have found that analogy helpful to talk about what is it we're calling our students to. It's much easier to be on one side of that fence than the other. Yeah. It's much easier to be yelling at people on the other side. Riding that barbed wire fence and listening carefully to what's happening on both sides and trying to help people come together when oftentimes they perceive themselves as being very different, they identify themselves in very different ways, I think that's part of the calling to reconciliation. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we don't have to repent. It doesn't mean we don't have to recognize our own shortcomings. I learned this phrase from Frank Thompson, epistemological humility. It means we become very humble. We recognize we don't know everything. Right. So I'm telling you, Elaine, I think that calling this fall is going to be even more important because we find ourselves right now, I think, at a crucial hinge point as a culture, as a country. And one of the things I think we can model here in Greenville is how do we do that in a way in which all voices are heard and we can learn to live together despite our differences. Wow. That's, I, that is my hope. And that was very, very well put. And yeah, it's got to start somewhere. Why can't it? Why can't it start with us? We hope so. <laughs> I want to thank you so much. This has been a joy and a treat, and I'm glad we got to uh, have this podcast in person. Brian, I hope you'll come back and join us again, and I and I look forward to uh, seeing how we move forward throughout 2020 and into this upcoming semester. Look forward to it, Elaine. Thank you so much. And thank you, Deloitte, for being here today to uh, make sure that everything runs smoothly. Deloitte's microphone is... Uh, it's taken a break, <laughs> but he is here. And I want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, please uh, continue to uh, look for our podcast as we get back on a regular schedule. And uh, find us at greenvillesmart.com. <laughs> <laughs>